Did you hear the news? LifeFlow has been named one of the best accounting and finance software products for 2024 by G2. And because of the support of listeners like you, LifeFlow is also on G2's list of the 100 fastest growing products of 2024. If you're thinking about implementing LifeFlow with clients soon, there's even more good news. G2 also awarded LifeFlow as most implementable for winter 2024. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LifeFlow, later in the episode. Ever wished you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark. According to Cred IQ, a real estate data provider, only 26% of the $35.8 billion of office CMBS loans that matured in 2023 was actually paid off in full. So only 26% of $35.8 billion of office CMBS loans that matured in 2023 were actually paid off in full. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, I learned something this week. I'm wondering if you know the answer to this question. So I learned this from uh, Kelly Phillips Herb, friend of the show, her column in Forbes magazine. Do you know the largest check you are allowed to write to the IRS to pay your taxes? The largest check you are allowed to write to the IRS? Like paper check to pay your tax liability. I never really thought about it. I figured they'd just be happy to take my money. Is this a problem you have not accounted yet? You've not exceeded this? No, no. I, I, well, I don't write paper checks uh, very okay. frequently. I think I'm still working on the same checkbook since when I you know, opened up my bank account uh, you know, 20 years ago. So the, the limit on a paper check is $999 million and nine, wait, nine, $1 <laughs> under $100 million. So $99,999,999. So okay. $1 under $100 million. So you can write a paper check. And the reason this surfaced up is, are you familiar with the retired boxer Floyd Mayweather Jr.? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, everybody has heard of uh-huh. Mayweather, right? And he publicly has been tweeting and putting photos and Instagrams about his personal finances for a long time. When he makes a, a $60 million bet on a on his own boxing match or bets in the Super Bowl or gamble. He's always has it out there. Well, he posted a photo, and I'm added to the stage here so people can see this to the feed. It's a picture of a paper check he wrote to the IRS. Try to zoom in on this a little bit. So it's a Wells Fargo It's a Wells check Fargo check for, um, it looks like, cents. And obviously, the check looks doctored up because they had to cover the micro line and they changed the check number to 1000 And I don't know how – it also kind of looks like a fake check at the same time. Yeah. So maybe rich people get different kind of checks than the rest of us. Um, but, yeah, it's – so we learned that. And then for e-payments – Wait, wait, wait. Um, so could, I just, oh, I just want to stop here. So you're saying that the IRS will not accept a check that is 
a hundred million dollars or more. It has to be less than that amount. Correct. Why is this? So they implemented, I don't know the why, but they implemented it, um, it went active January 1st, 2016, and was from IRS bulletin dated September 7th, 2015. Hmm. Uh, I do see here in the article that check processing equipment at the Treasury cannot handle checks over $1 million and that they must be processed manually. And the manual processing can lead to lost, stolen, or misshipped checks and increases the risk of fraud and processing errors. So even though the limit is stated as a hundred million uh, or the the high limit, you may want to stick to under a million dollars if you want your check processed on their equipment. Correct. And then when it comes to using direct pay, so if you go to the website to make deposits, that is capped at one penny under ten million dollars. Hmm. Um, there's too many ten, nines. They ten million. Okay. They should communicate it like one penny under ten million or something because. It's just there's too many nines in these these numbers. Uh, oh, so basically he couldn't have written he couldn't have made this as an electronic payment because he's limited to ten million and he had an eighteen million dollar tax liability. Well they tell you to break it up into smaller payments when you pay it. Wow. You pay that over. Well that is fascinating, David. I learned something today. I don't know if that'll ever come in handy for me personally as a podcast host. <laughs> it is a very lucrative profession, uh, but I don't expect to have a tax liability in any given year of over $10 million. So, well, you know who else has a massive uh, tax liability? Normally, it's Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, savior of anyone who doesn't like to leave the house. Like me, who I think last year I had over 200 Amazon orders, which means more often than not, I'm getting an Amazon delivery to my door, right? More I'm than most, every other day. <laughs> yeah, more than every other day. Um, well, Jeff Bezos recently relocated from Seattle to Miami, and that alone may have saved him approximately $288 million in taxes. He sold $4 billion worth of Amazon.com Inc. stock, and because Florida does not tax capital gains, unlike Washington State, um, it's tax-free, no capital gains at the state level on that sale. Yeah, we talked about this in de um, December when he said he's moving to be closer to his parents. We were like, maybe there's some tax things. And so in 2022, because Washington State didn't have any income tax. So in 2022... They still don't have an income tax, right? They do not have an income tax, but they, in 2022, they imposed 7% capital gains tax tax on sales of stocks or bonds more than $250,000. That's a so lot. Up, up to that point, Bezos was selling $2 billion a year of stock for years. And then 2022 came and he just stopped. Then he moved right. to Florida and last week he sold $2 billion and he has plans to move possibly 50 million shares before the end of January 31st, 2025, which I think um, could total more than $8.7 And he might be saving as much as $600 million in taxes by not being in Washington. Wow. So this is an example of a state tax policy that has almost certainly pushed out their wealthiest resident, right, or one of them, and made a move to Florida. So this sort of thing can backfire. States put in place these, you know, onerous tax rates on, say, capital gains or whatever it is to target wealthy individuals. And guess what? They can just pick up and leave. Bezos can just go live on his yacht in Miami, right? He doesn't have to live in Washington. 
his $600 million yacht that he now can afford yeah. to, to move. So, because there's always this talk of chasing, you know, these billionaires, you know, for the from a federal tax perspective. Is that like the next step of this? Like our biggest potential uh, tax uh, payers in the country just leave the country entirely if we do this at a federal level? Yeah, well, and that's the risk, right? Is uh, And you see this happen in Europe, right? Different countries in Europe will raise taxes significantly and you do it too aggressively, too quickly. And billionaires and millionaires have the resources to simply relocate and they can change their tax home. So it's kind of a losing battle, right? Or it's a game of whack-a-mole. And really, if you want to raise revenue, the best way to do it is to tax the people who aren't going to leave. Or don't put in place a 7% capital gains tax and do it in a single year. That's just going to piss people off. You know, raise the temperature slowly. Or maybe if they'd done like a 1% tax or something, maybe Bezos would have said, ah, fine, no big deal, right? So taxes that are too high uh, often reduce the tax base and have a negative consequence. It does not achieve the goals. And I think um, Elon Musk, right? Because he really could be located to Texas from California. And then two well, years he relocated really a lot of uh, the production of Tesla. Oh, yeah. From not, not just his Texas. own personal finances. You're right. The whole company. Yeah. The, the company yeah. headquarters, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it happens with corporations too, right? They follow the tax breaks. And often it doesn't end up working out that great for the – that's actually the opposite where it doesn't end up working out that great for the states or the cities that – give them big discounts to attract them. Because then as soon as those tax breaks go away in say 10 years, the company simply relocates again. This happens with movie tax credits too. Um, and actually I have a story about that. Oh, by the way, did you know the accountant two, Ben Affleck is filming the accountant two this year? It's finally in production. It's really happening. It's entering pre-production with shooting plan for 2024. And we talked in a previous episode about how this is going to be more of a buddy movie. It'll be a dual lead focusing on the dynamic between the two brothers. Uh, ben Affleck's character has a brother, Brax, played by John Bernthal. And so there's going to be more screen time for John Bernthal in the Don't you have too. connections to the movie industry? Is there any way possibly like maybe when he's driving his truck down the road, he could have the accounting podcast playing for a split second? Uh, no. I, well, I think the best I could do is maybe get us into a uh, pre-screening courtesy of my relatives who are in the academy. That's all okay. I could possibly do. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a meet and greet. We could we could try to get a meet and greet with Ben Affleck. That would be amazing, right? We could wear our podcast t-shirts. Yes. <laughs> I had a story here about movie tax credits and how they don't always work out. Yeah. So this is in Georgia. So Georgia has a a big movie scene in Atlanta. And just the state in general, they've been successfully attracting productions, come to Georgia, film in Georgia, get tax breaks. Uh, Vancouver does this very successfully as well. So, At one time, Tucson did as well. And now really? there's no movie production in Tucson anymore. Because they probably got rid of the tax break, right? They, I think they did something like that, yeah. So this is a story in Variety. Georgia film credit creates fewer jobs than industry claims per audit. So of course, that caught my attention. Uh, an audit of the Georgia Film and TV Tax Credit Program found that it generates approximately 34,354 jobs annually. That's according to a state audit. 
This figure is significantly lower than the 59,700 jobs reported by an industry-funded study. The state audit revealed that the tax credit, which reached a record $1.3 billion last year, only brings back $0.19 cents for every dollar spent to the state's treasury, indicating a financial loss for Georgia. So Georgia actually loses money on this tax credit, according to the state audit. And now Georgia lawmakers are currently reviewing tax incentives across all sectors with a joint committee from the state's House and Senate due to release a report by year end. I suppose that was last year because this article came out in, at least I saved it, in my notion back at the end of the year. So the film industry in Georgia is preparing to defend the credit. It's the largest in the U.S. The second largest is New York's recently increased $700 million per year incentive. This is something so, that's so, so not new to me. So how does this work? So I'm going to ready. I'm going to have this great idea. I have this television show. I'm a producer. I'm ready to start shooting it. I approach Vancouver. I approach Tucson. I approach Georgia. And George says, hey, we'll write you a check for $700 million in tax credits if you come here. Is that kind of how this works? Like, like it's bid out? I just know that there are these tax credits that exist. And so if you okay. go do your production there, you can claim these tax credits. And you don't okay. have to pay tax that you normally pay. Okay. But- and I assume that if you are producing a film and you've got multiple places where you could be filming this that meet your needs, you could then decide where to film based on how much tax credit am I going to get out of this. Yep. But again, as with corporate headquarters, relocations, it often doesn't end up being a net benefit for the state or the city that gives the tax break. Just how sports stadiums often yeah. end up being a financial loss for the cities that build them. It's a ego thing, right? It's not a money-making thing. You lose money. But of course, I guess there's, there's, you have to balance the uh, benefit of that, right? Do you want Atlanta to be known as a place where movies get made and stars are born? Maybe it's worth it in that case. But definitely from a financial standpoint, if you look at it, it's not. And then it, it probably creates tourism because and who knows if that, how that gets added or especially this, because uh, walking Dead is filmed there. And I think you, if you go to Atlanta, we could go on a Walking Dead tour. Like we, oh. it brings in tourists. So I wonder does that get tied in. to these studies? You know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. or, where does the ripple stop versus direct revenue impact? I don't know. Yeah, I imagine that these audits, these studies are focused just on the actual revenue attributable to the production, right? Happening yeah. in that state. This episode of The Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. LiveFlow has been successfully syncing QuickBooks Online to Google Sheets for thousands of accountants and their clients. But if you're an accountant that used Microsoft Excel, you've been missing out until now. Now you can use LiveFlow to connect Microsoft Excel to QuickBooks Online and sync your reports in real time. With LiveFlow's newest feature and just a few clicks, you can sync QuickBooks Online data with Excel to create live auto-updating dashboards and reports, keeping your clients in the loop. And LiveFlow makes customizing reports easy. Add rows, columns, calculations without breaking the live connection. Your formatting even stays put when the QuickBooks data refreshes. You'll save hours per month by eliminating manual exports and fixing broken spreadsheets. And you'll finish client work in record time by utilizing LiveFlow's over 100 customizable templates. It's a true set it and forget it solution that allows you to spend your time offering insightful client advisory. To revolutionize your financial reporting in Excel with LiveFlow and to get 25% off your first three months, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. 
I have a movie article. All you, right, let's hear it. If you have anything there. So, um, you know the Roadrunner and Coyote, right? Roadrunner versus Coyote from cartoons. Well, I, I moved to Arizona, so I see Roadrunners, Runners. actual, okay. like the animal, the not animal. a cartoon, running on the street right. about every week. I see one. They are funny animals. They are like the, you know, like these these flightless, do they fly? They don't they're, fly, do they? They're like little dinosaurs. I, yeah. I, they, 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 they look you know, like little, like velocir- little plump velociraptors. The ones in my neighborhood are really fat. I, I, I feel like the coyotes must really feast on those when they catch them, if they ever do. But they're fast. They run along the roads. They really do. And they, they can kill the rattlesnakes because they're fast. Like, yeah, they're yeah. Kind of an amazing animal. Anyways, but, you know, the coyote, he, all his tools to kill the roadrunner are from Acme. You're talking about the Looney Tunes coyote the Looney Tunes cartoon right? series. Well, yeah. So th- there's been a movie in development called Coyote versus Acme. And this is uh, being produced by Warner Brothers Discovery. And, you know, when movies come out, maybe production didn't go well. Maybe the movie didn't test well. Maybe it's going to flop. So... And in many cases, it's cost more to promote the movie than it does to actually create the movie. An example of this is Barbie. It cost $145 million to make, $150 million to market. Wow. That's a lot of marketing. So Warner Brothers Discovery decided, you know what? We're pulling the plug on Coyote versus Acme as a tax write-off, and they're going to claim in the ballpark a $30 million write-off. Well, people had an outcry. Crews, fans, Hollywood studios. So now they said they were going to shop it. So now they've tried to shop it out there um, for $70 million and it still hasn't sold. And people are accusing them of, they never really wanted to sell it anyways. They want the tax write-off. And this is the third time Warner Brothers Discovery has done this since the new CEO took over. They did this with a movie called Batgirl and they also did it with Scooby-Doo, The Haunted High Rise. So, because when I, I think about this and I'm like, you have to be emotionally detached from the art project. Because let's be honest, it's an art project, right? And yeah. like, and this, I feel like, is a good role for accountants and virtual CFOs when they advise clients, right? There's that concept of, you know, sunk cost or in poker, you know, being pot committed and then people just put more money into the pot just because they've already put so much money in the pot. Like, this is a good role, for, I think, where CFO, virtual CFOs could help clients from sinking more money into something, right, and advising them properly. So maybe this is the right financial decision to make, but it's so sad because so many hundreds or thousands of people's lives went into making these films for so long and now the studio is never going to release it they're just gonna what are they gonna do put it in a vault it'll sit there and for years until maybe someday it comes out and it's all because you can immediately take all the expense on the PL and you don't have to capitalize this asset and that's something I learned from Kendall King, who I interviewed on my Earmark podcast yesterday. That episode is not yet out, but if you want to hear it, subscribe to the Earmark podcast. Just search for Earmark on your podcast player of choice, and you'll get to hear an interview with Kendall King, who is a Deloitte auditor, who was a Deloitte auditor, who made the move into entertainment and was working as a consultant in accounting. Uh, for uh, He worked for Netflix. Uh, did work for Snap, um, major you know productions, um, and I learned from him that like the reason this happens, these films get shelved, is because if the studio does not shelve the production, then it becomes an asset on the balance sheet, and it gets amortized over a period of years, and it has to get matched up to the revenue streams from say the licensing or the royalties. Netflix. 
doesn't have licensing royalties because they have their own distribution platform, but they still also amortize over a period of years. So they can take all the expense on the P&L in the same year if they shelve the project and decide never to show it. So it's an example of how accounting can influence uh, business decisions in a, I think, a negative way because like how could how could like Netflix just shelved a movie with Halle Berry? There's no cost for them to distribute that onto their platform, right? They just have to finish it. Like there's not much left to do. And yet all the Halle Berry fans will never get to see this cool sci-fi movie she was in. So I know I've, I don't know if we've ever talked on the show, but there's like those Tic Tac videos, like how rich people you could buy a piece of art, then donate it, and you could claim that the art was worth so much to get yeah. a bigger tax break. Like, couldn't they just donate this and still get the same amount of tax break? Uh, just donate to the Smithsonian or something, so that way the movie can live. I don't know. That's a good idea, David. Maybe we should pitch that to Netflix or to Halle Berry's agent. Figure out uh, how to make this movie come to life, or at least get distributed somehow. Well. Speaking of celebrities, we're on a bit of an entertainment kick. Um, I have a story about Kenan Thompson. I grew up with Kenan Thompson when he was on Nickelodeon. The sketch comedy series All That, which aired from 1994 to 2005, was how I got to know Kenan. Uh, we're about, we're almost the same. Well, he's about five years older than me, so he's 45. Uh, so he was, you know, like an, a child actor when I was watching Nickelodeon as a kid growing up. And he's also, uh, more importantly, and, and more well-known for being the longest-serving Saturday Night Live cast member. He's been on since 2003. So he's a comedy legend at this point and uh, has been working since he was a kid. And he was on a podcast recently um, where he talked about his relationship with his, his accountant. And I learned that Kenan Thompson was the victim of a huge fraud as a kid. So I want to play the segment from this podcast. Um, it's called Breakfast Club. And, uh, and let's, let's hear from Keenan, you know, what happened. Yeah, like I've been blessed to, to continue working, but yeah, I had a bad accountant and it came to the light around 99, like around 2000, which was really bad timing because that's right when I left my consistent gig, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So then I went into being an adult actor for hire, mm -hmm. and that is very hit and miss. How does the, how do you lose $1.5 million? Because I know you said it, but I know people are listening like, how does that happen? Uh, we gave that dude power of attorney when we shouldn't have. Y'all you know were I mean? kids. Yeah, I was a kid, and my mom was trying to protect me, you know what I mean? And he had helped her out of her like tax situations, mm -hmm. like her and my dad's like tax situations. So she thought she, she could trust him, mm -hmm. but she could trust him with like day 30 to 50 grand issues kind of shit. But like when it's like a million dollars on the table, you never know what people gonna turn into. And apparently he turned into a demon. And you know, he, I'm sure his karma has come back to him, but if it wasn't for that, I don't know if you know my track would be the same because I was ready to settle into Atlanta, you know what I mean? Like, I was ready to just be like, no, nah, I'm good, and, like, you know, it's three out of half hours to L.A., so if they need me, they can call me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I would have been as hungry or, you know, as, you know, dedicated necessarily. Like, I was dedicated to Atlanta. Like, Atlanta was, you know, my everything, basically. Mm -hmm. So I was very comfortable there and very willing to just be, like, around the corner from my mama and be happy kind mm -hmm. of thing. You couldn't sue the accountant or nothing? That I did, and I won, you know what okay. I mean? But he can't pay, 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. so like, it's just paperwork, basically. You want to spend more money to sue him and not get no money back. One million percent, you know, and I sued him for years and ended up winning. But I sued him because the IRS came after me. You know what I'm saying? And they were like, you haven't paid your taxes all this time. I'm like, well, that's what he was supposed to be doing. And he went and ran it. Don't y'all see? Like, I ain't got the money. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, but. And Uncle Sam don't care. They don't care. At all. They <laughs> want their money, you know? So I got my settlement and it's on that person now. But as far as like me getting that money back, and I knew it as soon as it happened. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I ain't never gonna see that money. You yeah, know, I might dang. as well just get back and start from scratch and just you know forget about it. If it comes back, Oof. great. But you know, it it has yet to. Mm-hmm. But I've been blessed in so many other ways. Like I take those life lessons and and just learn from them. Mm-hmm. I feel you, so sorry you, for everybody in that situation because word. they don't teach us financial literacy when, when, in, when in the communities we come from, but then we get people that we think are supposed to have our best interest in that way, yeah. and they take advantage. It's like, man, well, how can you ever a, trust a somebody man. again? A black man, God damn. An elder black man. Damn. <laughs> come on, my brother. How can you trust you somebody I mean? ever again? Because, like, you want to try to keep hope. You know, you want to try to keep hope on humanity. You know what I mean? You're Jesse like, Jackson just now, Keenan. You, you try to keep, keep hope alive. <laughs> I just find that so inspiring that Keenan Thompson was, he had $1.5 million stolen from him at such a young age, and he managed to turn that into a positive thing. It, had, it, it forced him to get out of his comfort zone, Atlanta, where he's from, yeah. and go to New York, go to LA, and really work on his career. And so it it's a terrible thing, but it ended up, Pushing him forward, yeah, and making that him fire in the belly to, mm-hmm. yeah, to go, yeah, to go earn more. Um, it, I, I think the key there was at the end the the host brought up about financial education. Yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of people just do not get educated about finances or accounting, and I didn't. I I, I did a talk at uh, the high school for Career Day about how to be a podcaster or influencer, right? So I did a talk on that, but I Trojan horsed it. I, I opened the talk with no matter what you go into. And when you go visit things on career day, all of it, you should just go be accountants because then you can do whatever you want. Even if you want to be a podcaster or influencer, be an accountant first. I kind of had to throw that out there because you're right. People just don't learn financial stuff. Did you, no. before we started, mention you have a story about people's marriages and finances or something? Does that tie into I, this? I spotted a story in CPA Practice Advisor. Money is the biggest relationship hurdle for one in four couples, study reveals. A significant number of couples, approximately one in four, identify money as the primary challenge in their relationship, and that's according to a survey by Fidelity Investments. This includes disagreements over daily spending habits, saving for retirement, and other financial matters. So I got to stop and ask you, David, are you among the one in four couples, are you a member of the one in four couples that has uh, money as your number one disagreement? It's a primary it's pretty challenge. pretty high up there. It's pretty up there. It, it, because, yeah. you know, quitting jobs, start being an entrepreneur, there's the comfort levels of risk. Couples don't all have the same comfort levels of risk, right? Yeah. Apparently, many couples, uh, to no surprise, I think to anybody who has ever had a financial disagreement with their significant other, many couples avoid discussing financial issues to prevent arguments. About 45% of the surveyed couples admit to occasionally or frequently arguing about money, and over a third disagree on their next major savings goal. Now, I should also ask you, David, in your relationship, who takes the lead in financial decisions? 
or do you are you equal? I th- we're equal, but I tend to do like you know as soon as the bill comes in, pull out the phone, pay it with the you know the the, the bill pay app on the credit union or river like that. But I think we're okay. kind of equal on major decisions. It's hundred percent equal. Yeah. So the survey found that one partner tends to take the lead in financial decisions in most relationships. About 29% of men claim to make daily financial decisions compared to 21% of women. Additionally, 31% of men lead in investing and retirement planning as opposed to 16% of women. So it tends to be the the male in the relationship. Um, That's definitely how we do it in my relationship, but also I'm like the accountant. So my wife was like very happy to say, this is your job now. Here, here's all the bills. Here's all the but, 401ks. But I would argue, like my wife gets stuff done that I don't. Like, I'll, we'll have, I'll be like, oh, I'm supposed to put this X amount of money into a CD. I never get around to it. And then she'll go do it in two minutes. Boom, it's done. Right. So if I want stuff done with our finances, that's important. I usually have to call on her. So Retirement planning is a contentious issue. While seven out of 10 couples share the same vision for retirement, over half disagree on the required funds for retirement. Nearly 50% expect to work part-time during retirement and 20% believe one partner will need to continue working to cover living expenses. I wonder if they disagree on which partner that's going to be. Uh, I'd love to retire, you know, early. But I don't think I could do it if I said, uh, Sam, you have to keep working. <laughs> I don't think she'd be too happy with that. So I gotta no. I gotta we gotta figure out how to make enough money so that both Samantha and I can retire, David. Yeah, it'd be on the same page. Yeah. Uh so that is my uh Valentine's related story, which is appropriate since we're recording the day after Valentine's. Valentine's. This episode of The Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay. Hey, Blake, back when you had your own firm, how many hours a week did you spend scouring through messy transaction data when you were working with your clients? Hold on, David. Let me check my timesheets. Looks like, uh, on average, 25.3 hours. Wow. And how many times did your bank feeds break? Countless. I'd have to go back and look at my two-factor authentication codes in my messages. I don't know how far back it goes, but... It was enough where it was a huge pain in the butt. But what if I told you that there was a banking solution that was free that could have saved you three to five hours of work per client per month? Three to five hours per client? Tell me more. It's 2024, and the banking headaches that you had when you had your own firm have been eliminated by Relay because Relay's business banking is designed for accountants and their clients. Collaboration between clients and accountants on Relay is easy and secure. Every client you invite to Relay gets added to your firm's partner portal. That means role-based permission levels for your firm's staff, direct bank feeds to QuickBooks Online and Zero, and statement syncs with HubDoc and Dext. Ultra-detailed transaction data that speeds up reconciliation and leads to less back and forth with clients. Plus, Relay's new partner program introduces meaningful cash rewards for advisors, more partner perks, and advisor directory to help you find more clients who already bank with Relay. To learn more about using Relay with your firm and clients, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash Relay. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. Hey, we haven't talked about AI yet. Uh, do you have any more entertainment or love? No, but I actually stories? have an AI story I was already starting to bring up. But you can All go right, first. Let's talk about it. Um, no, go for it. Go for so it. So headline for this one, this was a, it's a blog or website called Cal Matters dealing with California. 
issues, right? But California is now planning, the California Department of Tax and Fee Administration, to use AI to answer tax questions. So when busy season strikes the state of California for their tax, you know, taxes, the call volume quadruples up to 10,000 calls a day, and the average wait times go from four minutes to 20 minutes. Hmm. Uh, the Department of Tax and Fee Administration in California is about 3,600 people, and about 375 are call center agents. So you have, for sake of our discussion, like 400 people taking phone calls, answering your questions as a citizen in California about the taxes. So next tax season, they plan on using generative AI to advise the agents on the answers they should regurgitate out to the people calling in on the phones. It almost reminds me of, I know when we interviewed uh, Daniel Vidal from Expensify, and he was talking about how their support, the reason they're able to scale their support is they kind of have a bot sending the answers up and then somebody just approves it to go out the door on their chat, right? Kind of similar to that, it reminds me of. Now, in theory, they're going to be able to review the answer before it goes out the door, but in their call for proposals, they're asking that the AI is able to provide the responses to voice calls, live chats, and other communications. So the writing's on the wall. Yes, we're gonna have the agents do it, but the writing's clearly on the wall. We really want the AI chatbot thing to do it instead. Um, it's a six month contract if somebody gets it, which by the time this rolls out, how are they even attest it? It feels like a very, very, very short contract in, in my opinion. And they're judging it, it must demonstrate shorter call times, you know, reduced wait times, abandoned calls, right? All those types of things. Um, obviously there's also, you know, the risk of, you know, they're trying to keep it on uh, siloed out servers and uh, public information that's already publicly available and then hallucinations, you know, the typical AI challenges. But I don't know, my two cents after working in a call center with 400 people, even if it hallucinates sometimes, my experience was with 400 people in a call center, 50%, half, regarding giving out bad answers. So it, it really like, like if anything, it's just gonna help the bad people yeah. just get a little bit better. And everybody's gonna win by that because it starts to add up because if if you call in and you have a 50% chance of talking to somebody that's bad, that's gonna be a wrong answer, you're gonna have to call back in and get in the queue again. So if you take those 50% bad people and turn it to just 25% bad answers, you're gonna reduce a lot of call volume, right? That's funny. It's proof that AI doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than your typical employee. And the typical person in a call center, like you said, is maybe giving out wrong information. And it's the same thing with self-driving cars, right? The average driver may not be that great a driver, especially the average impaired driver. And impaired drivers are the ones who cause the most accidents. They cause the vast majority of accidents. So put the impaired drivers into self-driving vehicles and you save tens of thousands of lives every year. Same thing with these call centers, right? Answer way more questions. And this is what the IRS should be working on, is don't try to staff those call centers that they've got. Uh, try to use AI and self-service portals to let taxpayers and their representatives file taxes better. Like They're fighting the last battle if they try to use people to solve these problems. Yeah, I remember the, uh, it was QuickBooks support. I came up through the tech support for QuickBooks. And I remember there'd be some people, they, they literally had three answers. And no matter what your call or question was, Blake, you're getting one of those three answers. And, and the fast, easy one, which is a lot of you, is because if you ever, geez, let's go back to the QuickBooks desktop days. Remember, like, you have to verify the data file and rebuild the data file? Oh, God. 
That's you're the best way to get off a phone call. PTSD. Click file, verify data, and then move on. Then you're off the call. Yeah. Well, David, here's my AI story. I got a lot of them, but this one has just been sitting in my queue and uh, kind of irritates me. It ties remote work into AI. AI is why young staff need to be in the office. That's according to PwC's UK boss. All right. So what does AI have to do with getting us back at our desks? So Kevin Ellis, the chair of PwC in the United Kingdom, said during an interview at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, that generative AI is removing, quote, tasks that in the past are more junior staff trained and cut their teeth on. Without these tasks, you've somehow got to get people through the career path faster. It's a lot more face-to-face -face time being important and a lot more developing. So you have to get people in the office more working together. If you're asking me my opinion on how you succeed in your career, he said, I'd be in the office four to five days a week. And his comments came as a PwC report came out showing that British companies are adopting AI more rapidly than their international peers. Apparently, 42% uh, of UK bosses have implemented the technology, that's what they say, in the last year, uh, compared with 32% globally. And Ellis, the uh, PwC head in the UK, he said that in the audit sector, AI would likely mean the end of charging clients for work by the hour. Outcome-based fees and effectively licensing and charging for tech and tech assets will become more important, he said. And I agree with that. I agree that, that makes sense. AI that is going to be the argument. end of the billable hour because it's going to make audit and tax so fast that we will have to charge for our knowledge and not for the time it takes to fill in forms or to do audit procedures. Um, and I think that's also what's going to hold back AI adoption in a lot of traditional firms is that if you're billing by the hour, it's really hard to implement AI because it cuts your hours by potentially 80% once it's fully in your stack, which is exactly what I discovered when I implemented cloud accounting in my tech cloud-based accounting services business, my bookkeeping practice. So, so I agree with that part of his argument or point of view. But I want to make sure I'm summarizing and understanding his first point of view, which is, hey, junior staff, we used to give you tons of work to do. And because of that, you got good at your job. And because of being good at your job, you're able to move up to career ladder. Yeah. Well, now that work's going to be taken away from you from AI. So you need to come in the office and just kiss ass to get promoted? Is, is that what he's saying? <laughs> like, 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 I like, think that's, that's a pretty fair way to put it, actually. Um, I mean, you know, I see, I, and... I don't buy this because I've been in plenty of office environments where staff don't get, they just come in, they sit at their desks and you can see they're not interacting with anybody and then they go home. So like this idea that being in the office magically creates face-to-face -face interactions, I believe is a huge fallacy by managers. And that the only way to actually create that is to have formalized programs to create the face-to-face -face interaction, right? People can ignore each other sitting right next to each other just as they can ignore each other sitting at home. And if you run a remote practice, one of the best ways to get that face-to-face, -to, -face, to get that training for your staff is to have dedicated times when those young people are on Zoom calls or on Teams calls with more senior folks, shadowing them. And it only takes a few hours a day of that 
to get the same amount of FaceTime that you would actually get in an office environment. Because we all know that most of the time in the office, you are not having that working time together. So it, it can all be overcome. So this idea that you have to have an expensive office and force people to come in and lose work-life balance to get this benefit is false. You can his, do it. His argument should have been this. Come to the office because we as managers now and partners are using AI to give us elbow room to actually interact with you and coach you and help you develop your career. Like that, that would actually be the better argument is we're replacing some of our job duties with yeah. AI to I think be better you, managers. You can make the other argument that AI is why young staff don't have to be in the office because they can learn from AI and they don't have to go bug their managers to find answers to questions. Like, prove me wrong. Right. Well, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time till somebody's like, we only need one person to manage all this AI staff. We don't need multiple managers, right? But if, if people aren't coming to the office, you don't need all these managers. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ClientHub. ClientHub is workflow software for taking your accounting firm to the next level. ClientHub is both amazingly powerful yet amazingly simple. With tax season in full swing, you need tools to work efficiently, keep clients happy, and help your firm run smoothly. ClientHub helps manage your firm's workflow, track time, triage email, get e-signatures, and more. My favorite feature is the AI built-in that saves tons of time. ClientHub can automatically draft email replies to common client questions, and the new magic workflow creates detailed task checklists and instructions for any new client worker or unusual requests. Beyond the amazing AI, ClientHub's seamless client collaboration makes it easy to resolve QuickBooks uncategorized transactions. The simple modern interface means your team can start using ClientHub in no time, and with mobile apps, tracking tasks and communicating with clients is easy for everyone on your team. It's even easy for clients too. To start your free trial of ClientHub's amazingly powerful yet amazingly simple workflows, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash clienthub. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-I-E-N-T-H-U-B. I've got some follow-up on a story that we covered a while back. The Silicon Valley bank collapse. We actually did a whole special live stream when that happened. It was so cool covering the issue, talking about, uh, we also talked about like the issue that caused it, the accounting treatment of held to maturity bonds on Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet was the root cause of the entire bank run. So basically to review, Silicon Valley Bank had, what did they have? They had uh, government bonds on their balance sheet. They had gotten billions of dollars in customer deposits from startups during the era of free money when interest rates were so low that it was very easy to borrow money. All of these venture capitalists borrowed tons of money and gave it out to startups. Startups took those uh, funds and deposited them at Silicon Valley Bank, which was the number one bank for startups in the country and the world. So now Silicon Valley Bank has billions and billions and billions of dollars of deposits. They don't know what to do with all this money because they historically were not in the business of loaning out you know billions and billions and billions of dollars, right? So they took it and they just plowed all these billions into um, federal bonds, right? Treasury bonds. And then interest rates started going up. Apparently, nobody at Silicon Valley Bank planned for the contingency of what happens if interest rates start going up. And what happened is that the, the value of those bonds uh, started to plummet. And the way that banks are allowed to treat bonds on their 
balance sheet is that if they plan to hold them to maturity, they don't have to report losses. They don't have to mark those bonds to market, right? And so they can basically hide the losses that are economically happening in the accounting treatment. And so this is a big issue still because there are lots of banks with like commercial real estate portfolios, right? Commercial real estate loans on their books. And all this commercial real estate is now worth way less than it used to be because people are working remotely. But they don't have to mark these to market. They don't have to disclose these losses that are going to happen because as long as they plan to, you know, hold these to maturity or whatever it is, right? All these bonds, loans, et cetera, then um, it's just at the original cost. And FASB had the opportunity, the Financial Accounting Standards Board had the opportunity to consider changing the standards after these bank failures. This was reported back in December in the Wall Street Journal uh, that they decided not to consider any changes to how companies account for held to maturity securities. So this is the ticking time bomb in the banking sector and potentially in our economy is that there are trillions of dollars of uh, securitized commercial real estate loans. And big important things like teachers' pension funds and things like that. Yeah. And they may not end up, you know, realizing, uh, like they may not getting, these, these loans may not get paid back because the real estate is worth a lot less and the, uh, the holders of these, the, the, the borrowers are not going to be able to refinance every six, seven years like they have to, um, because the, the simply the, the rent payments are not there to support the loan payments. And so um, FASB had the opportunity to consider changing the standard, right? Say like, no, you have to mark to market or you have to do fair market or whatever. And they decided not to. So all of this is still hidden on bank balance sheets. And the Wall Street Journal has been doing some great coverage about this. There was an article published on February 12th in the Wall Street Journal, What Mortgage Bonds Say About the Office Meltdown. Commercial mortgage-backed securities make a troubling proxy for the loans on bank balance sheets. And I'm just going to read from the article here. Banks issue about half of all commercial real estate loans in the U.S. They don't always give much detail about the health of the loans or the buildings they have lent against until it is too late. The first investors hear of problems maybe when lenders set aside hundreds of millions of dollars as provisions for likely future losses, as happened recently at New York Community Bank Corp and Japan's Azora Bank. The lenders' shares have tanked 53% and 34% respectively since they revealed souring U.S. office loans in recent weeks. There's an indirect way to get a picture of the pressures building on some banks' loan books. Commercial mortgage-backed securities account for 14% of U.S. commercial real estate lending and are a good proxy. Helpfully, the CMBS market spews monthly data about default, rate, default rates and the latest building valuations. What happened to the billions of dollars of office CMBS debt that matured last year? Which property watchers have been so worried about? According to CredIQ, a real estate data provider, only 26% of the $35.8 billion of office CMBS loans that matured in 2023 was actually paid off in full as borrowers struggled to get refinancing or to sell their properties. So only 26% of $35.8 billion of office CMBS loans that matured in 2023 were actually paid off in full. And the chart here, I'm just going to put this on the screen for our live stream viewers. 
chargers, you know, of the share performance of these banks, you know, is just, they, they just tanked. So there's all these loans coming due on commercial real estate. These loans are held on bank balance sheets and only a fraction of the borrowers are going to be able to repay these loans in full because they have to refi because these loans are not 30 year fixed loans. They're like five, six, seven year loans. And there's a balloon payment and you have to refi or you owe that entire balloon payment at the end. And people are just going to walk away, just like they did with their houses in 2008, just walk away from the house, walk away from the mm -hmm. mortgage. People are going to walk away from these buildings, and these, these payments, right? They're just going to say, forget right. it. And so, because, to tie this back to accounting treatment, because yeah. FASB has declined to change the accounting treatment, it's possible for banks to hide this issue by saying these are held to maturity, so I don't have to recognize any losses, as long as I intend to hold them to maturity. And the only reason they would have to change it is if management decided we can no longer, we no longer have the ability to hold these to maturity, which is discretionary, right? That is a management so decision. Kicking, the, kicking at the can down the road, eventually this will be uh, accounted for, yeah. like and, it and, or not. And the only check on management is the auditors. The auditors would have to stand up and say, we don't think you have the ability to hold this to maturity any longer. And that may have been what happened with, what was it, New York Community Bancorp, where it got so bad, eventually they had to say, we're not gonna be able to do this. Yeah, so, so And the then first they have to round, recognize a big loss. So, so what it first, does is, instead of having small losses over time, right, you, you, you hide the losses and now you have a big write-off. Yeah, so, so the first round of bank failures was due to the interest rate changes in the treasury bonds. Right. But now the second, because there was just a bank failure, what, two weeks ago in New York? Well, that was the one. Um, that was the one, right? Well, it, did, so it didn't this fail. Be... They didn't, New York Community, I don't think New York Community Bank Corp failed, but they failed. had this big write-off and their share price plummeted. Uh, okay, so it did not fail. But do you see that as the next wave? Like, we're going to see some banks be a victim of this? Well, this is the fear among regional banks is that they are regional the ones banks. that issue, like, most of these commercial real estate loans. And so they... They have them on their books, yeah, right, and they haven't written them off yet because they get to say, as long as we think that we're going to get paid back in full, we can keep them without recognizing any of these losses. Yeah. This is best so, I can explain it. So tying back to uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the, the fallout of that, so then this is like our government tax dollars at work here. So obviously FDIC takes over the bank, right? FDIC is in charge of the money. They're in charge of making people whole. Well, uh, Silicon Valley Bank owed back taxes to the IRS for about $1.4 billion and actually owed New York City um, $2.1 million. And so first New York City sued the FDIC last month, and now the IRS is suing the FDIC to try to get their money. Like, like we have two government agencies not working together in any way, shape, or form to, to do what is probably the right thing to do. Well, David, I would love to keep chatting, but I got to run because I am co-hosting a webinar with Hector Garcia on the Earmark webinar platform, all about the future of QuickBooks. And that's coming up in just about uh, 20 minutes. So I better jump over there and check Super. in. Um, if you are listening or watching live and you're interested in the recording of that webinar, go to earmarkcpe.com and sign up. 
you'll get notified of future live events. It's not just the accounting podcast. We also have live webinars from all sorts of instructors now, including Hector, who's also the host of the unofficial QuickBooks accounting podcast. And uh, I don't know what exactly our plans are, but I think we will be, I believe we will be putting the audio of this webinar out on the Earmark podcast and possibly on Hector's unofficial QuickBooks podcast as well. So and it'll be live streamed to YouTube and LinkedIn and Facebook yeah. all at the same time. So if you're watching this, you could just jump over the Earmark channel on, on YouTube. YouTube. Oh, yeah. Just watch it there. Yeah. yeah so, uh, hey, if you haven't had enough of me <laughs> this morning, hop over to the Earmark channel on YouTube and find the live stream of the um, future of QuickBooks with me and Hector Garcia. We'll be chatting about it. Thank you, Chayton, for joining us. Chayton says, great episode. Loving Earmark. Uh Boring Accountant says, David can keep the show going. Boring Accountant also says, AI software for audit and tax will need data integrity to be effective and correct and clean data will not likely be something AI can help with. That's a good, that's a good point. We'll see. Um, we also had some comments about the Accountant 2 movie. Tulungu96 said it's going to be a trilogy as well. Yes, the Accountant is going to be a trilogy. So they're filming the second one this year, and uh, we don't know about the third one. But it's definitely going to be a trilogy. And uh, Yelena, thank you for joining us as well. Yelena uh, was chatting about those checks, that check that you saw, David, oh. uh, that didn't look like a real check. She said these are temporary checks you can get from a bank. So there we go. So you opened up a bank account, wrote the first check to the IRS. <laughs> Great to see you, Steve. Steve says good stuff. Awesome. Uh, Perfect. See you all here next week. Oh, and don't forget, if you haven't taken our survey, please take our listener survey. Let us know what topics you want to hear about. Um, go to accounting.show slash survey. That's accounting.show slash survey. Take our listener survey. It's five to 10 minutes. It really helps us know who you are and what you want to hear about so we can uh, tailor our coverage to your preferences. And uh, that's all I got. I'll see you here next week, David. Bye, everyone. Time for the classifieds. Looking for an amazing and intimate conference experience this fall? Join Hector Garcia, CPA, in his second annual Reframe Workshop on October 24th to 26th, 2024 at the stunning Oceanfront Diplomat Resort in Hollywood, Florida. The theme this year is Influential Conversations for Accountants. Come share and collaborate with 200 other accounting pros that want to level up the way they communicate their value and become more influential with their conversations. Go to reframe2024.com to get your ticket with early bird pricing through February 28th. Last year, the conference sold out early, so head to reframe2024.com to get your early bird pricing. Want to make learning QuickBooks Online a breeze for your staff or clients while pocketing some extra cash? RoyalWise.com's Owls platform is the perfect solution with over 100 hours of in-depth QuickBooks training content spanning more than 40 topics. Join the partner program and become a vital link in the education chain. Share custom affiliate links with your bookkeeping team and small business clients and see the rewards roll in with every successful referral. You're not just earning cash, you're connecting your network to valuable CP credits and lessons led by one of Ignition's top 50 women in accounting, Alicia Katz. Enhance your service offerings and earn with each referral. Join today, royalwise.com slash partner. That's royalwise.com slash partner. 
Stop settling for slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly. Accounts that use Forwardly can receive payments in less than 22 seconds. Yes, under 22 seconds via the newly launched FedNow network. And if your bank or a client's bank doesn't yet use FedNow, Forwardly will send the payment via same-day ACH for free. To get paid in under 22 seconds, go to forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Ever wonder what your cast tech stack should be? Ever wonder how profitable a CAS firm is? Ever wonder what CAS, C-A-A-S, and CAS 2.0 are? You should read Luke Templin's new newsletter called the CAS Cash. The CAS Cash newsletter is designed to help accounting firms grow their CAS offerings. The subscription is free. Head to cas.beehive.com. That is cas.beehiv with two eyes.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.